This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, your host for today's episode of 15-Minute History. Today we're going to be talking about cats and dogs in history, specifically paintings of cats and dogs in a new exhibit at the Blanton Museum of Art at the University of Texas at Austin. Our guest today is Francesca Consagra, who's the Blanton's senior curator of prints, drawings, and European paintings. And she is the curator of this show. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you so much, Joan. Uh, well, let's start with uh, a kind of description of what the exhibit is, what's in it, what its purpose is. Well, the exhibition has 155 works of art that cover 33 centuries of our relationships with... That's historical. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is. Our, our relationships with these two species, cats and dogs. It's primarily focused on uh, Western Europe and uh, the United States, but we also have objects uh, from China and from Mexico from the third century. Uh, so we do have a, a wide range of objects, but I, it's predominantly European, and the majority predate 1900. What's the purpose of the show? How do you see the, um, the overall purpose? Well, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, uh, but... I feel that it's the curator's job to make art accessible and to share the joy of looking and thinking with as many people as possible. I do find that going to art museums and learning how to look is uh, nourishes the soul and, and the intellect. So um, having a popular subject like this uh, cats and dogs is a way of bringing people to the museum who might otherwise uh, never come and um, in, in the hopes that they will be moved and inspired to learn more. Studying these objects can also um, teach us a lot about the past. So, for example, what, what can we learn, let's say, about religion in the past by looking at paintings that include cats and or dogs? So this is really interesting. When, when you come to the exhibition in the first room, you're going to be introduced to a wonderful group of objects from ancient Egypt. And one of them shows the goddess Bastet. She has a cat head and a woman's body, which uh, comes from the late period, and that's around 7th century BCE. And it's bronze with gold inlay, and she has golden eyes. And this is from the San Antonio Museum of Art. And it, it references an entire culture that revered the cat to the point where, through observation of the cat, they noticed that um, they were good mothers, they took care of their litters, and they had a lot of litters. And so if you were a young Egyptian woman... Uh, and you wanted to be a good mother, and you wanted to have lots of children, you would have a figure of Bastet uh, nearby to worship or evoke uh, these wonderful attributes within you. And um, there were huge temples devoted to Bastet, and near them were cemeteries uh, for cats. 
And we also have in the exhibition a small uh, coffin, a bronze coffin that had cat skeleton in it, a mummy, a cat mummy. And sometimes they would even bury their cat mummies with mummified mice and little uh, cups of milk so that their beloved cats would have a good afterlife with lots of mice to eat and milk to drink. Um, So you come from that period to, let's say, you know, medieval Christian period in Western Europe, and you have a completely different response to the cat. And it was probably inspired by this very popular cult of Bastet in ancient Egypt, because if the cat was so revered in a pagan religion, then it might not be looked upon as so wonderful in a Christian religion as trying to remove itself from paganism. So that was um, one of the impetus. And everything that the Egyptians loved about the cats, you know, really fertile, <laughs> you know, lots of litters, nocturnal, uh, you know, were all the things that the Christians felt, you know, this was an animal that hunted and was highly sexualized, let's say. And so they took that as meaning that perhaps this animal was could be an agent of the devil. And uh, this wasn't the only animal who had this laid upon them. Uh, there were toads and other creatures that were looked upon as agents of, of evil. Can you speak about an individual object that depicts cats as um, evil? Yes, there there are a couple in, in the exhibition. Uh, one is by the wonderful artist uh, Bruegel, uh, and it shows a uh, cat and a toad looking at each other in this den of evil with witches flying and a sorcerer sitting looking at his book of magic and all these strange hybrid animals, uh, you know, with different parts of different animals attached to them. And, and it's it's supposed to be this evil den. And in there is this cat and toad looking at each other. I did some research to try to find some kind of literary source for the cat and toad looking at each other. <laughs> so close. And I did find one written by a uh, late medieval bishop of France that said that this incredible story, which uh, almost sounds like Monty Python in the way it's written, (laughs) or I should say the way it's been translated, it said, um, beware of the cat. Uh, It licketh the toad. (laughs) And then with that, the poisoned tongue, it would contaminate the water source for good Christians who would be sick for as much as six months. Uh, One of the things that we talked about uh, earlier is that there was a period in European history when portraits of children would often be accompanied by their pets. Why was that? And and what does that tell us about the period when these paintings were made? Well, this is really interesting because, as I mentioned, the cat is not looked upon very well during the Middle Ages. But then all of a sudden it starts getting into some portraits very slowly. By the time of the Enlightenment, so by the 18th century, you start seeing more and more children, especially, with their cat. It is likely coming from this break from tradition, so break from the Catholic Church and these concepts of evil, uh, at the same time, a rise in this 
concept of kindness and child rearing already by the work of John Locke, which is at, he was a British philosopher at the end of the 17th century, you already see him writing that to create a good citizen, a good adult citizen, it's important to rear a child in a way that um, they feel empathy and kindness towards others. And one of the ways that Locke suggests doing this is bringing a pet into the house. So when you see a portrait of a child, let's say of a 10-year-old, holding a book and then has a cat also on, you know, on their lap, it's a sign that this child is being well-raised. She has a book, which means she's learned, her parents have taken the time to teach her how to read, but she's also a kind person who knows how to care for other creatures and people. And uh, that combination of stimulating the intellect, but also the heart of a child, really comes to the fore in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we're still part of that tradition today. Many families feel it important to teach their children not only empathy, but responsibility through the care of a pet. Mm -hmm. And you worked with uh, a lot of people outside of art history with historians, psychologists, sociologists in putting the show together. Um, what did you learn from them? How did that change the way you, you did your job? Well, what I just mentioned about childhood was inspired by talking to Janet Davis, who is a professor in the um, American Studies Department. Here at UT. Here at UT, yes. She is going to be publishing her book on the culture of kindness in the United States. And she was very helpful. Uh, I owe a lot to Sam Gosling, who is a professor in the psychology department at the University of Texas at Austin. And he is an anthrozoologist, which is he studies human and animal interactions. And this is a new discipline that's only about two or three decades old. And it really is, let's say, a symptom or a product of the culture's own interest and devotion to these companion animals, which has risen, you know, dramatically. We spend billions of dollars on caring for our pets. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing that you do that's um, not traditional is you include some non-traditional works of art in the show, such as cat videos. That's right. Um, where do they fit into the overall trajectory of the history of the depiction of animals? or And what can they tell us about us, about our own period? Well, I think um, what, what I mentioned earlier about this boom, in fact, one anthrozoologist calls it petophilia. <laughs> you know, this like total Just love, love and admiration uh, for pets, uh, for especially cats and dogs. But also there's this incredible invention of the Internet. And uh, this is a way some people feel that cat owners can uh, share their wonderful, beautiful pets with the world. Uh, someone said it's sort of like a worldwide dog park uh, for, <laughs> for the cat people. Uh, 
But cats are incredibly lithe and beautiful animals. Hold on. Are you a cat person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can tell. Okay. <laughs> you know how I can tell? Because you, you, most of your questions have revolved oh, around cats. Cat. And there, there are actually more dog images in the show. Well, that, that was actually my next question yeah. was, what's the relative weight of cats and dogs in the show? There are, uh, I would say there's about a third feline and two-thirds canine. Mm-hmm. And that... That's because dogs serve more utilitarian uh, purposes, not just hunting, but uh, they were depicted as loyal companions long before the cat. So really starting uh, as early as the uh, 13th and 14th century, you start seeing companion dogs. Uh, and you really have to wait till about the 18th century to start seeing that with cats. You also, uh, there's a whole genre of hunting uh, that evolved from the aristocratic pastime. Uh, in fact, you had to be an aristocrat to hunt in Europe throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and into the Baroque. So these wonderful hunting pictures show the, these fabulous hounds on the scent or you know, running down a wolf. I have an image of that in the show. So dogs appear in art much earlier and, and in many much more varied ways than cats do. Mm-hmm. Um, in the literature section of the exhibition, I devoted that solely to the cat. Um, and in the morality section of the exhibition, there's mostly cat imagery in that as well. Uh, I felt a way of balancing out this situation, which is a cultural situation, uh, is to give the cat it sort of the last hurrah of the show because you know to give I have three monitors outside of the show because I did feel like the moving image would be distracting mm-hmm. uh, in an exhibition with paintings and prints and drawings. So and outside the show, you have three video monitors. Three video monitors, and there are four very popular cat videos which are mesmerizing. I find them mesmerizing. Two are from Japan, and I have to thank the Department of Japanese here at the University of Texas for helping me get the privileges uh, to show them. But there's Maru, a very famous uh, Internet cat who's charming. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a Zen cat uh, who's featured in a 12-minute video of cats with things put on their heads. Also, I I was interested in the quality of the video. Uh, Some are higher in resolution than others, but Mm -hmm. I thought they were visually compelling. Mm -hmm. I think Nora the Piano Cat uh, was more about how the cat is adapting to a human activity like playing the piano. And we actually have an 18th century uh, illustration in a book in, in, that shows a very famous Parisian harpist who had her cat who would guide her harp playing. So if the cat didn't like it, apparently it would uh, express itself in a certain way and she would change the way she played the harp. <laughs> and she was so thankful to this cat, this is a true story, that she gave her entire estate to it and uh, had very famous, you know, important lawyers write up the will. And there's a picture of her on her deathbed with the cat on her lap. 
and uh, the lawyers there drawing up the will. So you'll have to come see that. It's quite amusing. But um, in the end, her human family won out. Now, do um, people gravitate to particular paintings? Uh, or objects? Well, I think they start with the video. So they're already in good good mood by the time <laughs> that they, they, they get in. No, that's a nice way to... Yeah. So, and you, oh, it's also the last thing you see. So you're usually in a pretty good mood. <laughs> but and I'm hoping that our visitors will also start thinking about how they take care of their own animals, how their own psychology is influencing their relationship with other species. So that is, to me, important. Um, I, there are some big paintings that attract people. There's a huge one of otter hounds on the scent from the 19th century, which is just incredible. It has these big, smelly, wet dogs, you know, really in the pursuit of hunting an otter in a stream in Great Britain. There's also a fabulous large painting by one of the great game painters of the 17th century, Jan Vanix which attracts a lot of people, even though it's a bit gory because it's a game picture. And that means that there's a lot of dead animals uh, <laughs> looking at you as, you as you come towards it. I would say some of the Japanese prints are very popular that show cats on the prowl. And there's a beautiful drawing by Edward Hopper uh, showing his neighbor's cat, actually it was John Dos Passos's cat, Perkins, young boy. And so there's the intimacy there of an artist who really does enjoy the company of a cat and is able to express that through this drawing. Well, it sounds like a fantastic show, both um, for art lovers as well as people interested in the ways that paintings can tell us about history. So thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you so much for, as I said before, for your interest and for this interview. Thank you, Joan. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.